have to be aware of the reason that we're doing uh, our craft. And if we're constantly aware that we are doing it for a why that we're um, extremely passionate about, that will lead us to have a lot of importance when we're looking at subject matter, when we're learning something, and that will be assimilated more. I mean, Hi folks, welcome to the Emergency Mind podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Chris Teicher. So Chris is a board-certified emergency physician practicing primarily out of Inglewood, California. He's also an entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Resolve, that's R-E-Z-O-L-V-E, a company devoted to delivering affordable telehealth to the uninsured. As if that's not enough, Chris is also an author, and his book, Preparing for Residency, is just recently out on Amazon. It's a novel guide to the non-medical aspects of residency training. As the name of this episode suggests, we talk a lot in this conversation about linking the why, the underlying driving force that gets you up in the morning, with the nuts and the bolts of how you accomplish something in and out of emergency. Along the way, we dig into increasing the velocity at which you and your teams can effectively learn, and about the importance of knowing the exact gritty details of how the rubber meets the road for your particular craft and your particular situation. Before we jump into the episode, a reminder, if you like what you hear on this podcast, consider signing up for our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free and it's awesome. It digs a lot into some of the details that we present on the podcast and also brings in ideas, opinions, and techniques from a variety of other sources. You can find it at emergencymind.com slash sign up. All that said, let's get to it. I hope you enjoy. Let's jump in. Chris, thank you so much for joining the podcast, man. It's great to great to see you and speak to you again and uh, really happy you're going to come on and talk to us about, about thinking under pressure. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we worked together back in Boston when we were both in residency. Um, yeah. And I, and I want to sort of start by taking us back in time a little bit. You had a really interesting path to get to emergency medicine, which involved a bunch of stuff, including training and a couple of other medical disciplines. And, and I'm wondering if we can start with that. So, so tell me, when did you first start get, getting interested in emergencies in general and in performing under pressure? So I, when I was in college, I, I think like a lot of people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I did a lot of, a lot of odd jobs. I was uh, tutoring. I was, uh, I tutored some chemistry. I landscaped. I catered you know, events. Uh, I ended up shadowing in an ER because I did like science along the way. And when I shadowed an ER doctor, a guy by the name of Brad Whaley at, uh, up in Santa Cruz, <clears throat> it was uh, it was a really uh, powerful experience because I got to watch somebody who had a room full of relatively panicky people, nursing, but certainly the patients. And uh, there was one case in particular where there was a, a patient who was in dire straits and he was able to kind of stay calm under pressured situation. And deliberate and make decisions that ultimately save this guy's life and you know that seeing that that was enough I thought there's no better job in the world at that time and uh, sort of set out at that point to do ER and of course I kind of went full circle I got away from ER specialty and I think you know I was going into interventional neuroradiology uh, I was in New York and then realized that's not the great uh, the greatest like path for me as my personality kind of likes a little bit more fast paced and uh, a little more off time. So the ER life was, was better for me in the end. And you went through about, as I recall, about a year of training in internal medicine and neurology. Is that right? Well, just, just a year of internal med. And I was beginning the neurology track to go through the medical track to get to the procedural stuff and uh, finished yeah, a year of internal medicine at 
at Montefiore at Einstein College of Medicine's hospital in the, in the Bronx, Montefiore. And then came back to be working with us uh, at the Brigham and at Mass General and the Harvard Associated Emergency Medicine Residency, um, which is where you and I met. And and so it's sort of an interesting thing because it's almost like you went through two different beginning phases with two different like complete philosophies and two different ways of thinking about life and and medicine and challenges in general. Absolutely. Yeah. And what, Take me through that. What's that like? What are what are some of the differences that you saw like at the very beginning of your time in both of those fields? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I haven't thought about that too much in a while, but it's it's so true that they're uh, they're night and day. It's a completely different existence. I mean, the it was a very tough year, like it is for every intern uh, being an internal medicine resident. You're you know you're going through grueling hours. It's very stressful. It's a very steep learning curve. And you do get under some pressured situations. There are some life and death situations, but they're few and far between. They're pretty rare. Uh, you do have a lot of backup as a trainee. Um, and um, it's, you know, you're managing a lot of chronic problems. You're managing blood pressure and constipation. And and the stress more has to do with just getting through the hours. And I think like I was doing 100 hour work weeks, like just straight through the year. So that was grueling. And then switching to switching over to Hamer at Mass General. I mean, that was, uh, it, was a, it was a really great experience for me. When you were going through your original training in medicine, how conscious were you of, uh, of sort of the model of learning in that way? And I guess what I mean by that is um, one of the themes that we come to quite a bit in this podcast is that there's the knowledge you have to learn, and then you have to actually learn how to be adaptive and continuing to grow over the course of your career. and I think that that's, uh, that's more or less sort of conscious at some points in all of our trainings, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. we're focused just on knowledge acquisition, like here's mm-hmm. how to do this, here's how to do this, here's the dose of this. And sometimes we're focused more on sort of learning how to learn and learning how to actually perform mm-hmm. our skills. So uh, what was that like when you were doing the original medicine training? Was, was there a balance in there? Did you get both? Did you get one? You know, that's a good question. I, I can't really speak to like the pedagogy of that field of that program because it's been a while i mean there it didn't seem to me like there was much of a system it just seemed kind of like you know you learn as you go along the way um the one thing i will say about you know the learning how to learn and just in terms of knowledge acquisition versus like a procedure to to be effective with um, applying knowledge i mean in in the hammer program mass gen we uh, oh, I had to basically figure out a whole another way of practicing, which had a lot to do with just modeling the people that seemed to know what they were doing in a way. So I don't know how much that was conveyed or like pointed out and laid out as a clear path. But um, but I think the thing that was really helpful to me was just looking at like like you were one of my seniors, the people that seemed to be most coherent and effective and were leading the team effectively, calmly, you know, uh, efficiently, the people that were doing that and watching them work, seeing the things that worked and didn't work, and then paying attention to those that, you know, struggled a little bit, what seemed to get them flustered, that, that helps a little bit too. Um, I would say that the one of the processes that I think is most worth mentioning that I saw as a really effective way to not only acquire knowledge, but end up applying it really effectively was the um, like preparation. And I think you were one of the one of the seniors, too, that did this a lot, like huddling as you prepared to receive a patient that was uh, critically ill, already coding 
and you know huddling with the team making a game plan thinking about what were the likely culprits of a of a cause of someone to arrest outside the hospital and as they came in you know you just had step one two or three and four ready and uh, plan B, C, D, E, F, et cetera, all the way to just get things going. So that second the patient lands in the room, we're just like a well-oiled machine. And that, that was probably the thing that stuck with me most that, you know, preparation is, is the most key thing. It strikes me that you've spent time in your life learning a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of which is emergency medicine, which we're definitely going to talk about, one of which is at least a little bit of time learning internal medicine, a totally different discipline. And then there's all this other stuff that you do that we were talking about the other day, right? Surfing and jujitsu and drumming and music, all of which involve this sort of two-part idea to it, which is that you have to learn the skill, and then you have mm -hmm. to learn how to perform and apply the skill. Mm -hmm. And and I guess what I'd ask to start open-endedly is across all of these different things that you've spent your time in life learning, what are some of the themes that you've come up with about how one uh, learns and how one performs? Like when I hear the drumming, it's like ding, ding, ding. Okay, there's definitely some, there are some pedagogical approaches that are very uh, complementary to basically learning any new skill. And I think we we're talking a little bit about the drummer from Mars Volta somehow. We talked about that. And it's, you know, the rudiments of drumming, the rudiments of any skill set really come down. And you pointed out, it's like slowing down and practicing something at its most fundamental level and getting really good at that stuff, getting good at the fundamentals, taking the time to like put in the time to acquire the, the base, the knowledge base, and then that can then be built on very strongly. Um, in a way, there's no shortcuts to that. You know, you have to, you have to put in the time to read, to actively learn whatever the processes are. Um, but learning those fundamentals, slowing things down, and the and being pretty rigorous about it and regular so you know any expert musician any expert in any field that does you know stressful processes whether er doc your military your um your martial arts you have to do very rigorous regular practices because you know everyone knows if you stop your craft for a little bit you lose your edge a little bit and the longer you go you eventually lose it so in order to build that you have to put in you know put in the hours you have to be regular about it um and uh, you have to be very, I guess, critical about uh, and observant about your own processes. So, you know, everybody has their their personal faults, but I think along the way, if you pay attention to where yours are, you're very honest about that. It's, that's the best way to correct your faults and then to kind of improve upon those. So, I don't know. I mean, you could take uh, you could take any example. I guess I tend to be with drumming and we could apply it to ER, but I mean, I remember because I've been drumming for 20 years and uh, I think you were talking about uh, the, the music stuff I did in residency. So I was in that band Astrogen. And so I was doing some touring uh, mid residency, which was fun and got me into a little bit of trouble because I think I was spread too thin. But but to get to that like performance level, as you said, it's like you really have to um, to see not just how you perceive yourself, but how others are perceiving yourself and just be very honest about what's happening in the learning process. So I'd like for drumming, I would just be, to, I would be maybe too quick to perform drum rolls and I would think they might sound good, but you really have to work up to a certain speed. If you try and jump ahead, for instance, like you're never going to sound like that Buddy Rich or that Thomas Prisoner, that just like beautiful role that just sounds so appealing to the, to the human ear. Uh, you really have to build in the at the right uh, the right speed. So you have to you have to put in the time, I guess, is what I'm saying, and just be really critical of your own faults. So again, for me, it was maybe going too fast and thinking that I could do a roll at a certain speed and tempo 
uh, ahead of what you know I was ready for. So you, you have to be critical and say, hey, okay, I got to practice these roles this tempo for this amount of time before I can get up to to this tempo. And and again, just being really observant of yourself, I think that's and critical is a is a skill set in itself. That's awesome, man. Let, let's break down a couple of those things and sort of sort of block and tackle them a bit. So, um, you, you know, you talked about martial arts briefly, and and you talked about this idea of regular practice and sustained practice, and then making that sort of constant that idea that you're constantly practicing part of your life. And mm. it makes me think of uh, Funakoshi, who wrote the a book, among other things, The 12 Guiding Principles of Karate Do. And one of them, I forget the number, is uh, karate. practicing karate is like boiling water. You have to keep adding heat to the fire, otherwise the water stops boiling, right? Oh, and I think the, yeah, sa- like, yeah. the same is true of, ex- of being an expert in, in a field, and, and particularly in fields that are high pressure, which is that you don't just get to a point and then you're an expert and then you're done. You have to continually right. practice and hammer and sharpen your craft over and over again. That's that's very obvious and true when you're a beginner, when you're a junior. And that's, I think, no less mm-hmm. true mm-hmm. when you are farther along, which is that we're all continuing to grow and, and learn. Um, there's a great... Uh, a great, really interesting group out there, the, the Mission Critical Teams Institute, that does a podcast called TeamCast that we're, I was just listening to this morning that was talking about that, the idea that that um, being adaptive, being flexible under pressure is the mark of a true expert and that that mm-hmm. expertise continues to grow over time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you also said something that was really interesting, which is, which is the idea of um, the importance of... Uh, self-reflection and self-criticism as you're sort of like learning your own skill, like being your own, mm-hmm. being your own guiding light and your own tutor for that. So mm-hmm. how does how does that apply for you in emergency medicine? Like when you're on shift mm-hmm. and you're working on something, um, what do you do? do? Do you do you go home and, and keep a notebook of what went well and what didn't? Are you mm-hmm. constantly mm-hmm. How, how are you tuning yourself in emergency medicine? I guess the processes for self-reflection for me uh, are. Uh, largely just, uh, a drive from, come from a drive to just really wanting to be the best, you know, possible doc and to basically have those moves and those, uh, very rare circumstances where no one else knows how to, you know, come up with a plan to save someone's life. And so when I leave most shifts, I'm always thinking, I'm always dwelling, unfortunately, or fortunately on how I could have done better. It's like, as I'm falling asleep, I'm honestly going through in my mind, like, like, just like last night, actually, I'm thinking about how that case could have gone better. How could we have prepared more? What could have done? What could we have done differently? A brief of it is that it was a, a lady with a, a tracheectomy a while back, and uh, she has a tracheal stent, so a Y stent. So none of her trachea is left, basically, except, you know, her. she has vocal folds and cords that go to this Y stent. And she came in with strider, like acute strider, and ended up intubating her. And she had a mass at her vocal fo- folds. And you know, it was just a wild airway. It was a very close call. We were able to get a bougie and a six and a half ET tube through. But the the bottom line is, uh, you know, I was thinking about that case all night and uh, all morning. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, some, I think the more that you live for those moments, I think the more that you love your craft, whether it's martial arts or emergency medicine, the more that you really live for those moments, the more that you want to constantly critique it, analyze it, improve upon it. So that comes a little bit from drive and that, and maybe like an obsessive kind of personality or mindset. Um, but you can certainly just be rigorous about it and come up with, like you said, like a notebook. Um, you can come up with 
strategies that will improve upon every situation. Like the, I mentioned the debriefs, but post huddles are also really effective. So just like getting the team together after a challenging situation uh, in any field and you just talk to the team and say like, hey, what could we have done better? But really create an environment where people really feel like they can talk about. Uh, then, you know, discuss it as much as possible. Um, and then things like the content, you can go and pull up a textbook, pull up videos and multiple strategy into difficult airways or whatever the challenging situation is and just get yourself super versed on it. Um, handling the equipment, you know, just get as immersed and as active in the learning process related to whatever process that was. Uh, that's all, I think, all helpful. When you sit down at the end of a musical performance and you go back and you look at how you did that night and you, you look at yourself as a drummer uh, and you say, hey, here's what I did. Here's what I could be better at. Here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. Ah. Are you using the same tools that you do when you get home from a shift in the ER? Like, are there reusable tools that work in both silos or, or are you inventing entirely different frameworks to evaluate yourself under? That's a that's a really good question. I, I'm not sure that I, I have the like an, enough uh, introspection on that on that on those parallels. I mean, um, that's a really good question. You know, I don't know if it's the same. It, it, there's definitely that like obsessive personality wanting to improve, wanting to critique, uh, being harsh on, on myself, uh, and then you know hitting it the day after in terms of trying to improve, wanting kind of to be the best in those fields, and just loving the outcomes of having the skill set so like being able to improvise you know on set or not on set but uh, on stage and, and when performing that's a great feeling and like wanting to be able to do that naturally that's a that drive in itself will get you to kind of hit the hit the studio and practice rudiments more but um, I'm not sure I have to actually think about that mm. some more yeah so there's this idea that like whatever skill you're doing you, as you put it, you have to practice the substeps of it. You have to learn the components and then start applying those components over and over again until you can yeah. get to the point where you're where you're improving. And I think it's really fascinating to look at this idea of like how are we how are we figuring out how to get better? Because you know I'm I'm not a musician, but but there's time when you're spent taking lessons where there's somebody else really guiding you, and there's mm -hmm. times when you're spending in solo practice where you're trying to perfect mm -hmm. your own craft. And that's mm -hmm. very similar to the way that we learn in, in emergency medicine and that we function in emergencies in general, which is that sometimes we're working with people. We're working in residency. We have dedicated training. But the majority of the time that it takes to actually continue to get better and grow is really on our own shoulders, right? So like as an ER doctor, I have to figure out how to get better, and I have to figure out how to keep getting better. And especially now that I am I'm a professor of emergency medicine I have to figure yes. out how to get better and how to teach people how to get better right. and you know and I think that there's some natural parallels in here which is which is why I was asking that question because sure I'm not sure what the answer is right I think that there are probably some reusable things in terms of how does one get better at things in general and some unique things to emergency medicine and and maybe this is a good time to sort of shift gears into a little bit because you just wrote this book right which congratulations by the way that's like super super cool and you wrote Thank this you. book about like how people should get ready for residency which which in some ways is is a question of like how do people get ready to learn a new skill as we're thinking about this in the context of how do we get better like what can you tell me about how how people can get set up to learn as much as possible and how people can set themselves up to succeed as, as a learner when they do have that guidance. Making sure that you're enjoying the process, that you're reminding yourself of why you're doing what you're doing and just staying, it's just like having that why, you know, it's that, it's that, 
that constant message that great leaders are talking about, but it's, it's trite for a reason that it's, it's so, it's so true that we have to be aware of the reason that we're doing uh, our craft. And if we're constantly aware that we are doing it for a why that we're um, extremely passionate about, that will lead us to have a lot of importance when we're looking at subject matter, when we're learning something, and that will be assimilated more. I mean, if you're reading something and you're looking at it like, this is the most important thing I have ever seen, I need to know this, and, and I need to know it now, that will be, that will be helpful in a way. Uh, I think that the other most important strategy that not only trainees, but leaders like ourselves, faculty, anybody that's trying to get a group together to improve upon their skill sets, do as much mental exercises that are independent of your mental crutches. So you want to think about ways that you're not going to rely on the help of your of your superior attending. You want to run the case, decide how you're going to treat this patient without any outside help, basically, that will get you to be able to make independent decisions. And then you can check yourself against whatever the advice is or whatever the help is. But the more, again, you kind of try and separate yourself from mental crutches along the way. So how does that apply when you're kind of further along and you're more independently practicing, you're an emergency doctor alone? Well, I think that you have to kind of take it a step further. You're not just thinking about how you would do the you know, handle the case if you were in the middle of nowhere and you didn't have a surgery consultant or a special specialist consultant, but you think about how how would I handle this if I didn't have the nurse? How would I handle this if I didn't have you know, some staff to put together this instrument for me. You know, you want to know, like last night, for example, I needed a bronchoscope. Well, nobody knows how to put together the bronchoscope. Okay, that's fine. But I'm lucky that I've had to mentally put that together because in the old, in the old facility at MassGen, they just bring you the bronchoscope all set up, right? But if you have to put it together for yourself, then you've gone through those mental exercises and you're a little bit more prepared. We talked about the importance of having an understanding of what your why is, what really what, what is the reason that you're showing up for the shift in the morning? And what is that for you? Do, do you have like a personal mission statement? Is this sort of like, like mm-hmm. what is it that gets you up and gets you into the shift in the morning? And how much does that play into your, your day-to-day cases? I mean, the why for me is to, is to lead the team towards, towards saving lives. It's helping the team get together and function efficiently to really get get people better, to make sure that if somebody's dying, we give them the best possible chance of surviving that outcome. That's really what it comes down to. You know, you just wrote this really interesting book about sort of preparing for residency and how how people can get ready to be learners. So what's your advice to them in that context when they're trying to figure out their own why and how to bring that into their shifts? Uh, everyone in any in any form of training needs to be really certain of the reasons that they're going into their career. It can't be for anything but that they love the work. There's something that drives them to the work in itself, the day-to-day. What they're actually doing is something that they love to do day and day. You're not going to love everything about the process, but it can't be to to get the approval of mom and dad. It can't be for social currency. It can't be for a very comfortable and secure life. Um, I think you really have to have a, a why that's 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 kind of completely separate and and different from that 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 mission has to be i guess more pure in a way
So let's shift gears slightly and talk, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of like what it was like for you coming up in emergency medicine and how you started to learn about performance under pressure. And I, I want to shift gears a little bit to what you're doing now. When when you walk into this chaotic environment and you know you're about to face this this serious challenge with limited resources where you're going to have to work hard to apply the knowledge that you spent so much time gaining, um, what are your strategies for keeping your head on your shoulders when the system sometimes gets in your way. And I ask that because no system mm -hmm. is perfect. And all of us that function in emergencies, sometimes we have systems that support us. And sometimes we feel like we're, we're grinding uphill against a frictionful surface. So what do you do when you feel like it's the system actually getting in your way? And how do you circumvent that to still deliver your knowledge? That's a good question. It's, it really it sounds silly in a way. It's really just stay calm. It's really because I think a lot of a lot of us, and I can just speak for myself for certain on this, is I have a tendency sometimes to want to uh, complain about what I used to have or what's available other places. And I actually one of the pieces of advice that I received uh, from one of our attendings back at Brigham, she just said, you know, never say like, oh, well, we had that at Harvard, or we had that at Brigham, or we had that here or there. Like it's different somewhere else because that's a very not only is it pompous and annoying, but it's just, it's not going to help you and it's not a reality. So, so I guess at times, you know, being frustrated and, and I was able to, to pull the reins back and certainly not complain outwardly, but cognitively and mentally just not get frustrated that, oh, well, you know, it's done differently somewhere else. We have all these great resources somewhere else because too bad that's, you just, you're not going to be able to change that at least on ship. So the idea of just staying calm, not uh, longing for what you don't have and just making the most, uh, the most, making the most of the resources that you have, uh, which in part is learning ab about everything you can in the department and, and associated departments, uh, so that you can optimize the resources that are there that you might not be in that room or in that department, but you might be able to go to the OB department and borrow some, some equipment. You might be able to go to the GI department and borrow their scopes. So just learning the department really well, knowing to the T, you know, what's available, uh, because a lot of the most seasoned people in that department might not know everything about what's what's there and what's available. So you really have to uh, take take it upon yourself to to look everywhere for what is available. And if you spend that time, then you, you can you know optimize what, what you do have in terms of like physical resources and equipment for one. That's that's great advice. And I think that when you start at a new place, being humble, being open and uh, being ready to learn is is crucially important no matter where you came from and no matter what happened before that. And that idea that like you are ultimately responsible for your team, therefore, whatever is around you, you also are responsible for learning and understanding. And there's a lot of links there to that, to uh, the really awesome book by Jocko Willick, Extreme Ownership, you know, where he talks about, among other things, this idea that no matter, no matter what situation you are handed, it is your job to deploy your knowledge in that situation. So therefore, you need to go in and learn as much as possible. That's certainly true for folks as they're starting uh, residency training or, or anywhere in their process as well. It, it might not make Absolutely. sense. It might not be what you're used to. It might not be immediately obvious. And still, you need to dig in and learn. You also need to dig in and learn, not just in your own chosen field, but in everything sort of immediately adjacent to that, right? You want to, you want to solve problems all around you whenever you see them. And, and I think that that sort of open spirit of like, hey, I, I'm just going to, you know, 
can't fix everything, but we're going to help this patient and sort of fix all the things around the patient as much as possible is really, uh, is really clutch. What about when you run into situations which are more um, interpersonal driven, right? Which are more sort of more sort of team building or more sort of driven by personality, um, uh, maybe personality related barriers to actually applying your knowledge. What are what are the strategies mm. you deployed then? Uh, so yeah, team building. I mean, that's 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 half the battle. I mean, it's uh, the, the interpersonal uh, struggles are most of what makes medicine hard in a way. I mean, in a lot of ways, the medicine's simple, it's algorithmic, there's only so many treatments for so many problems. And, uh, and yeah, so it's a, that's a huge topic. And that's why I spent half of this book talking about. And a lot of the strategies seem very simple. Um, but it's, uh, it's, you know, we're all human. So the, the personal stuff can get in the way very easily. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of it comes down to just, you know, playing, playing nicely in the sandbox and just being aware that, you know, you're not, you're not trying to take credit. You're not trying to be the victor. You're not trying to look like the leader. But if, if you're trying to make the team feel positive, feel valued, feel listened to, feel like they're part of the team, all these things ultimately make you the leader. So you want to you want to make everyone feel included. You want to make everyone feel good. Even if they're learning, even if they make a mistake, you want to just remind them like, hey, look, failure is a part of the learning process. And it strikes me that that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about understanding your why, right? Mm -hmm. So if, you're, if your why is to deliver the best possible care to the patient, that's why you got up in the morning. And you know that doing that requires working in this system and working mm -hmm. with this team. <clears throat> then mm -hmm. part of your why, part of actually answering the call of you being alive that day is right. learning how to function within your system and learning how to make your team the best possible thing you can come up with. And that takes on this extra power and this extra sort of uh, aura around it, right? To say like, it's not just, I wanna get along with these people, but this is what we have mm -hmm. in order to deliver the best care possible. And so this is what it takes for me to answer the why am I alive today? So, so what does that look like for you? I mean, do you have, when you start a shift, what do you do? What's your ritual to start a shift with your team? Or what's your ritual when things go bad to like regroup? Sure. You know, talking about what do we do when things go bad to regroup? I mean, um, you know, like you said, we're, we're, you're with your team on a regular basis and their, their success is your success. So you, for me, when I get up, when I'm going to the, I'm going to the shift, uh, if I'm thinking about the why or I'm subconsciously thinking about it, you know, I want to make sure that the team is as improved at the end of my shift as can be, which means teaching them in a very practical way. Uh, if a if staff or colleague makes a, makes an error or or something happens that ultimately leads to a bad outcome, and it's not necessarily an error, but something ha bad happens, I think a reminder to that to that team member that this is this is part of what happens despite our best efforts. Just just backing them up, you know, you know, just being, just being, uh, being a buddy for that moment, you know, just thinking if you were in those shoes, how would you want to be, how would you want to be talked to? You just want to be reminded that this is part of the process. You want to convey that it's okay. It's okay to, to feel kind of down, remind them, maybe share that you've been there. Um, uh, if they need time to, to vent, you give them that time. If they, if they want to talk in private, it's nice to, to give that opportunity just to say, Hey, look, you know, talk, you know, if you want to email me to set up a time to just like vent and talk about that process that work. I think if you feel that you're, you made an error and you're kind of feeling 
down, you're not sure how to learn. I think again, the the huddle or the debrief where you you pull everyone that was involved in the case and you just have an open, a frank discussion. And sometimes it's nice if you don't lead the discussion because then you can kind of, if especially if you're the one who may have made an error and you're worried about your own your own biases, it's nice to have someone else give their uh, give a summary of the case and have them take the lead. You know, um, I think that's that's a helpful process. Again, yeah, getting feedback, having uh, open lines of communication. That's that's quite helpful. And, and what's your advice maybe to somebody who's just starting out in their career? So, again, somebody that might be reading your book as they're starting to get into residency and, and they encounter a case where something went sideways, either either within their sphere of command or not. What's your mm-hmm. advice to them on sort of leading from below when that happens? Like if I'm not the head yeah. of the team, how do I how do I encourage creation of a culture that allows us to reset ourselves? understand that failure is part of the process um, and you want to feel some weight when you fail because if you don't feel that there is some gravity in that failure if you don't care about it you're not going to learn from it you're not going to take the the next the necessary steps to learn something more to improve your knowledge base to correct that so the next time it doesn't happen you know you have to have some sense of weight but you also can't let that weight be so heavy that you got a bag backpack of stones and you're like you know you're you're trudging trudging along, you have to be able to, to move, move agilely in a learning process. So in order to do that, again, it's striking the balance between knowing that failures are going to happen and really that those are the keys to successes because memory consolidation, knowledge consolidation is best in those moments, um, uh, but also because you don't know what you don't know until it happens. So you kind of want to put yourself in situations that are novel, that are different, that are scary so that you can have quote-unquote failures as long as you're learning something from them in a way they're not failures get into the spaces where things don't always go right and then right. start learning from that edge so there's this um uh sports coach and performance expert uh dave alred who wrote this book called the pressure principle that refers to that sort of thing you're describing he calls it the ugly zone he says get into the ugly zone because it's the zone where your skills are really tested you're put at the edge of your ability and your performance isn't always beautiful sometimes it's ugly and the more time we voluntarily spend in the ugly zone the better we're prepared for the times when we get pulled in a direction and it's just us in the universe trying to duke it out. Um, and I think that's really incredible advice. So yeah. I guess I'll turn that around to you. So what sure. are you working on learning yourself right now? Just departmental awareness. So I, I kind of mentioned that looking at what resources we have in that hospital and just kind of being a master of that uh, in terms of you know what specialists are available, what equipment lives where. I mean, like specifically where and what cabinet, because nobody's going to find it for you on the day that that tech or that person that knows how to get there isn't there. So you, you just, uh, I'm trying to basically really learn that hospital like the back of my hand. So that, that's been big for me. Uh, I kind of want to be a leader in that respect. So if anybody needs to know where it is, uh, I can help them. Get into a space and know where everything is. Just know where your equipment is and and know where your backup equipment is and know how to open the doors that it, that are standing between you and that backup equipment. And this isn't rocket science, right? But sometimes it's, hey, if the door between you and that crucial life-saving thing is locked, you better know where the key is to that door. Right. Exactly. That actually literally happened last night. Uh, I briefly mentioned this tracheectomy patient with a stent. You know, her trachea is entirely pla- almost entirely plastic. I really wanted an awake intubation. You know, that's the safest thing that we can do in these cases. I didn't want to have to, my backup being having to 
uh, crike or cricothyrotomy through a piece of plastic. I mean, that's like, so anyhow, so I, we go and we try and open up. I'm looking at all these bronchs through a glass, through, through the glass uh, door and it's locked. And like the anesthesia tech's like trying to get his hand through. And I'm like, no, don't break the glass. Like, just stop. We don't have the key. This lady's crumping. We got, we have to take a different approach. But uh, yeah, so we were literally looking at a box of equipment that I needed, but we didn't know where the key was. And that was, uh, that was frustrating. But I learned exactly who the person is that we have to call and how much time in advance we have to, in order to get them there to save this person's life or to do, you know, the, the, uh, the, the right steps. So. And and that's I think the sort of the mm-hmm. the mystery and the majesty of sort of why we're having all these conversations about performance under pressure because you have these real dichotomies that are in place which is that you have to understand the deep philosophical why that drives mm-hmm. you to get up in the morning and come to shift and you also have to understand where the key is that opens the one specific door that gets in the way of the one piece of equipment you have to have right. both of those things and you have to mash them together and it's that whole system that allows you to actually to put that knowledge into the patient when they when they need it the most. Chris, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here, and, and I want to turn you loose on the question yeah. we ask at the end of every podcast, which is, what is your challenge for people listening to this? What can they do differently tomorrow? I think that the most important thing that I could challenge anyone at any stage of their practice, whether they're at the top leading or they're a trainee, would be to pretend that you don't have anyone else. You don't have your mentor. You don't have your attending. You don't have your colleague or mid-level support, whether it's a nurse or, or any sort of auxiliary or backup staff consultant, you don't have the backup. And think about what you would do if you were alone and start to actually foster those skills. And the more that you actually believe that you don't have backup and you, in a way, pretend you don't have you don't have the backup for advice or for a procedure, the more you will learn things that will make you more independent and the more you can push that like actually take that to heart believe that kind of pretend you don't have practice the more you'll be you'll find yourself with skills that you you didn't think you could have before awesome man thank you so much for joining the podcast it's it's totally a pleasure to get to talk to you congrats on your book and i i hope it does wonderfully dan thank you so much man this has been fun Thank you, dude. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.